Hi, and welcome to the History Respawn podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. On today's episode, we're going to be running through some recent news related to historical games. And in addition, we'll be looking at the slate of upcoming historical games that may or may not be coming out this year. But before we get to all that, let me introduce my co-host for this episode, still licking his wounds from the Champions League final, Dr. John Harney. John, how are you holding together? Just just about, Bob. Just about. How about you? It's pretty rough. <laughs> same, Not going to lie. Same. Same. Pretty rough. Uh, uh, listener, if you don't know what we're talking about, we are both uh, big fans, diehard fans of Liverpool Football Club. And unfortunately, they lost the big game this past Saturday against Real Madrid. I mean, really... 14 championships. It's enough, right? I mean, they don't need any more. Why not give one uh, more to Liverpool? That's my policy. And just in just the most depressing way possible where like Liverpool were clearly better but couldn't score a goal and one of Liverpool's best players just kind of spotted them a goal. I don't know why he did that. He just decided, "You know what, guys? Too easy right now. Why don't you go ahead and let's see if that sparks us into life." But that's okay. Uh, that's okay. Uh, yeah. So many, many listeners going. What are they talking? About? Yeah, I know. It was. Right. It was terrible. Trust us. It was it, terrible. It, it went from being an, an amazingly magical, unbelievable season to being just a very good season. And uh, yeah, that's true. And then after you lose a big game, I don't know if you do this too, John, but I basically delete all of my sports apps off my phone. I don't check <laughs> yes. social media, and uh, I know I don't do anything online essentially. So if there's been any big history game related news that's come out in the last uh, you know <laughs> week, I I haven't seen it. So apologies. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to start with uh, some recent historical game news. And uh, the big news that came out, I think it was last month, uh, was the news about uh, the Strong Museum of Play. This is the um, kind of headquarters uh, for video game history here in the United States. On the Strong Museum of Play, based in Rochester, New York, uh, they have the World History or excuse me, World Video Game Hall of Fame. And uh, they just announced a few weeks ago their new inductees uh, for the 2022 class uh, for the World Video Game Hall of Fame. And those inductees include Sid Meier's Civilization. Uh, So this is kind of a big tentpole, big touchstone uh, in historical games. Uh, We just passed uh, last year the 30th anniversary of the release of the first Civ game. Uh, and uh, this uh, this game is finally inducted uh, into the Video Game Hall of Fame, along with uh, fellow inductees, including Miss Pac-Man, uh, Dance Dance Revolution, DDR, as it's more commonly known, uh, and then The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Uh, so, John, what is your reaction to having Sid Meier's Civilization finally included in the World <laughs> Video Game Hall of Fame? Well, it's an interesting, you know, class, right, as they say, because it's just a fascinating thing where Miss Pac-Man is in there. Part of the rationale for Miss Pac-Man being in there um, is, and I didn't know this until I saw the release, it's one of the five best-selling arcade games of all time, which is pretty interesting. Dance Dance Revolution, particularly people our age will remember, was like a thing that, you know, it sounds cliched, but kind of transcended games in in a certain kind of a way. Definitely. Um, Ocarina of Time is arguably the most, like, inside gamer boy pick arguably although <laughs> i think it's clearly a great game but yeah so so i think civ is interesting because i think civ civ is a crossover right like civ is 
definitely a hardcore video game person game in the way that Ocarina of Time can be. Um, but it also is the phenomenon in the way that Dance Dance Revolution can be. I didn't expect to be comparing Civilization Dance Dance Revolution before we press <laughs> record. But yeah, so it, it's interesting to me. I think what's intriguing to me about it is, and props to Strong for doing this, I would have anticipated Civilization just eclipsing anybody else that was named with, which perhaps it does. But I don't know. I, I'm intrigued by putting those four games together. It's really interesting to me. Yeah, I think, you know, the other uh, nominees, they included games or series like Resident Evil. Um, and then I think also uh, Assassin's Creed uh, was nominated as a series. Uh, and so there was some, you know, representation of some other uh, games, uh, other game series. Uh, Parappa the Rapper was also nominated, <laughs> which I think is a good nominee. Uh, don't get me wrong. But yeah, yeah, yeah. it's always kind of a strange mix. But I, I love the mix of these uh, inductees because it just shows you, you know, the variety uh, that gaming uh, can involve. And uh, I also really like the fact that uh, it's not just recent games. You know, I think uh, the most recent game on this list is... Is it Ocarina? Because I can't remember when the first DDR came out. I think that was like 96, 97. So, and then Ocarina, I think, was 97, 98, somewhere in there. So, uh, but regardless, um, you know, this is a great list. And it's really exciting, I think, to see Sid Meier's Civilization in there. Um, You know, I think prior to this point, the only other historical title that was in this museum's Hall of Fame was Oregon Trail. Um, and so, you know, from my kind of fanboy perspective, it took way too long for Sid Meier's Civilization to get in there. But now that it's in, I'm really, I'm really quite pleased. It is wild. You would, you would have kind of expected, like, once a Hall of Fame was established. So obviously Civilization is the first game in. And we'll, you know, that's in. And we'll be taking boats for, you know, like, it's, it's kind of fascinating. It didn't just go in immediately. You know? Yeah. 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 Um, but then, you know, I love this, uh, you know, I'm currently, uh, while we're, uh, podcasting here, I'm looking at the, the list and the news release from the strong museum and they go through and they give you some historical context for, uh, the induction of each of these games. Uh, the one for Miss Pac-Man is really good. Uh, you know, this is kind of, uh, widely regarded as the best arcade, uh, game that was, uh, put out. Uh, in the early 1980s, you know, Pac-Man was kind of the original, but uh, Miss Pac-Man is kind of widely regarded as the best. Uh, and this one, uh, you know, is really important for, uh, you know, its importance to acknowledging uh, girls uh, and women and uh, playing games. Uh, the Strong Museum, they put together a video uh, for these inductees. And in that video, they included some of the old advertisements from, you know, 1981, 1982, uh, mm-hmm. That showed girls, uh, you know, in the arcade, uh, which is, you know, something that kind of gets wiped away, I think, in most historicizing uh, about video games and arcades uh, in particular. Uh, and then DDR, of course, you know, uh, not only a Hall of Fame inductee, but the I would say the sweatiest game in gaming history, um, mm-hmm. you know, became a really big part of uh, the music game genre. Uh, rhythm genre, but then also, uh, you know, people were like uh, losing weight to this game. Like it was a really big thing, especially in the kind of uh, early 2000s, early to mid 2000s. And then Ocarina of Time, you know, I think as John mentioned, this is kind of the uh, video game nerds pick. Um, I'm pretty (laughs) sure that they included other versions of Legend of Zelda prior to this point. And I think 
you know, looking at the description they've got here, I think they chose Ocarina of Time um, based on the kind of judge's reg recommendation, but then also to have some representation for 64-bit games, uh, 3D action games, which is probably um, not that popular, I would think, even amongst gaming historians. I don't know what you think, John. What about the 3D action games? Yeah, 3D action, especially those early ones on the Nintendo 64. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just thinking here as we're talking about, it's just an interesting period in gaming history as the late 90s, early 2000s, because the PS2, you know, the PlayStation was this hugely, hugely successful thing, obviously. Um, and I think it was kind of a shock to the system for people our age who, there was a Sega Nintendo, those were your options, and PlayStation's this new option, but PS2 is this stratospheric shift, right? It's this, like, mm -hmm. I think it done says Revolution, for example, where... You could plug pads into the PS2 and there's all these different things you could do. And there's all these things that we now think about. And sometimes I think we give credit to innovations later on that actually began with the PS2. Um, and it's happening at the same time as these 3D kind of over-the-shoulder action games, which people are largely, I think, annoyed with. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's just kind of uh, it's just it's just kind of super interesting. I never played Ocarina of Time, actually. No um, kidding. Wow. Yeah, I've never played it. Wow. I just never I I never owned a Nintendo sixty four and um maybe I'll get it I'll have to get it wow. one of these days. Yeah. Wow. But 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 yeah, but everyone else on the planet has the reaction you just had, which wow. is like, oh that kid Yeah. So it's hard for me to I just take it as read and I trust every human I've ever met who's played the game that <laughs> it's this amazing game. <laughs> and therefore, yeah, okay. Put I mean, it in there. I mean you know? it is very much a Zelda game, right? You know, the mm -hmm. dungeons, certain weapons used in those dungeons and then building up to a final showdown. So it is very much that game, but you know, I think the scale of that game, uh, you know, particularly in a 3D environment was just mind-blowing mm -hmm. when it came out, I think in 98. Uh, mind-blowing. Just mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I could remember reading the uh, review uh, on GameSpot.com from Jeff Gersman, who gave it a 10 out of 10 right it's one of the, mm -hmm. the you know at least early on was one of the only 10 out of 10s on right. GameSpot, and so it was it was a big deal i don't know how it plays now like if new players <laughs> would relate <laughs> to it at all but you know at the time i mean just kind of a, a uh, it was a paradigm shift you know as uh it, historians it, of science yeah. would say it was a paradigm shift yeah well and it changed games too or helped to change games i think of that game and but also definitely gta 3 and when the open world stuff starts to become doable, and then I think there's a period where open worlds are like the norm, and they're good at everything. But like now, you know, we'll talk about it later. I'm playing Horizon Forbidden West. I was playing a lot of Elden Ring a few weeks ago. Um, there was another game in my head that I can't think of, where these ludicrously huge, massive open worlds where en enormously, crazy, enormously amounts of things are happening is just, yeah, you know, that's in the game. Like it's just, it's, yeah. it's wild, you know. Whereas when that game came out, it was just people like, whoa, yeah. Yeah, I can just run over there and just yeah. talk to something. Like, yeah, you can do I'm that. I'm just thinking in terms of 3D environments, you know, uh, Super Mario 64 obviously is in there, but Ocarina of Time and then a few years later when you get to GTA 3, I think those two games were yeah. really critical in kind of expanding mm -hmm. the horizons for games. And um, yeah, I just... Yeah, got to be inducted um and i can't really think of many other games at this point that i'd really 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 want to be in the hall of fame mm -hmm. i mean civilization was number one for me but 
Yeah, I would say Assassin's Creed deserves to be in there as a series, maybe not the first one. Um, mm-hmm. I've always felt, I think you felt the same way, that the first Assassin's Creed was a really, really good uh, mm-hmm. kind of test game and not really a, a, a great game in and of itself. Um, and then Resident Evil, I think that first game should probably be in there, maybe even just on its own. Um, and then you could put in something like Resident Evil 4 on its own. Um, but yeah, that's all I could think of. Any, I, any ideas, any recommendations for the judges as to what to induct next? <laughs> well, I would agree on Resident Evil 1 because I think that, funnily enough, I think people who like Resident Evil, who there's a lot of us, um, do recognize the games for this, but they don't get as much credit maybe they could get. They're, they're kind of weird B-movie games, but in so they kind of create their own thing, which later literally becomes B-movies. <laughs> um, but like that first game, is fa- it's a haunted house game. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's a really interesting thing. Um, I'm going to, uh, forgive me if it's our, if game is already in there. I mean, at some point, Dark Souls would have to go in if it's not yeah, already. I don't think it is, um, yeah, but that's a good one. Well, Souls-like is a thing, and I'm playing, I'm mentioning Horizon for Bidden West again. I'm like, wait a minute, like it has direct mechanics from Dark Souls in it, which I was not expecting at all. It's like, <laughs> that game, is it's wild how influential that game yeah. has become. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, moving on, let's talk a little bit about uh, Assassin's Creed and, uh, in particular, uh, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, which uh, came out a couple of years ago, uh, but we just learned uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, according to Ubisoft, uh, that Assassin's Creed Valhalla has been played more in 2021, in the past year, than it was during its year of release. So what that means is that the downloadable content the dlc for assassin's creed valhalla has been extremely popular right if a mm. game can uh be uh you know accessed by player play you know played by players in greater numbers than the year in which it was released that's crazy uh and so i'm a little bit disheartened by this news because i'm somebody who likes the older versions of assassin's creed and in particular the older versions of Assassin's Creed, their runtimes, which usually lasted between 16 and 20 hours. Uh, and so what this tells me, what this news tells me, is that the days of those games are well and truly gone now. And now <laughs> we're going to be left with Assassin's Creed games that go on for 50 to 60 hours and include multiple pieces of DLC there that are as long as older Assassin's Creed games. And so I'm happy for the series. You know, I know a lot of people put a lot of work into these and they are, um, you know, relying a lot on historical research and using scholarship and employing scholars to create these games. Uh, but at the same time, I kind of want my time back, John. I want I want those hours <laughs> of my life back. I know. I mean, well, and I, I, I'm happy for all the people who can literally spend, um, you know, uh, like six hours a day for a month playing these games. Mm-hmm. And I, that must be amazing. And I salute you. Um, you should really probably be doing whatever schoolwork or paid work you're actually supposed to be doing. <laughs> but I'm happy for you. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the clear takeaway is, uh, you know, we should have more Ireland-themed DLC for every video game imaginable. <laughs> that's just the, that's the obvious take. Um, 
it's wild. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, somebody, I forget who, somebody on Twitter recently, or maybe a few months ago, was telling people, you know, you could just go, whatever sale was on, you could go and get Odyssey and all its DLC for whatever it was, $15 or something like that, yeah. and just be so happy playing that game. Yeah. Like four years later, you wouldn't even notice. And yeah. and I so I think that's kind of an intriguing thing too, the longevity of these games. Um, and as you and I both know, Bob, I mean, it's so funny, even more than I anticipate, when I want to talk to students about video games, especially historical video games, college students, traditional age college students, they met, they reference Assassin's Creed all the time. Yeah. Like all, I mean, obviously it stands to reason it's these super popular video games, but it's just, I don't know, I just feel like it's always coming up. So I think it's a good thing for what we're interested in, because hopefully people who grew up playing these games, I feel old saying that, um, you know, they understand, oh, there's cool things I can do if I take an historical setting and put it in a video game. Like, yeah. they, they played that. So that's, yeah. that's my hope that long-term it's, a, it's really good news for the kind of stuff that you and I are interested in. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think it's really encouraging, too, like you said, um, you know, having Ireland in a game at all, like, mm-hmm. regardless yeah. of the historical setting, is kind of amazing. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it makes me excited because, uh, you know, when the Assassin's Creed... Uh, kind of uh, marauding horde of historical research when they plop down their tents in a historical time period they really marinate in that historical time period and Mm. they kind of often go in weird directions that I don't think you might expect like you know going to Ireland I think was surprising for a lot of players and so I kind of hope they keep doing that you know I know that uh, most of the attention is going to go with the the main game uh, and you know most players are going to play that and uh, they might not even finish that i mean i haven't finished valhalla mm-hmm. i played 30 hours i'm not even close to the end um but it is i think it's great to see you know these dlc packets coming out and being used as opportunities to explore kind of lesser known regions lesser known areas uh, and to give some uh, you know limelight to those uh, kind of uh, unexplored areas, at least by games, unexplored areas. So I think that's that's exciting. Yeah, and Ubisoft as well. You know, they're they're leaders in that space, as it were. I think that it really, I really think there's a lot of knock-on effects for lots of other developers of varying sizes when they make a decision. I mean, you could argue that like Vikings wasn't a big leap because there's been there's lots of things, movies, TV shows, the last few years, Vikings as they will every seven or eight years, the rest of time will are like a thing, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like something mm-hmm. from the Vikings. But then they decided, let's do a Viking in England. And let's basically make it a 10th century England game. It's like, yeah. okay, that cool. You know, that's just not something I expected at all. I think that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, in other news related to big tentpole games uh, in the history genre, Uh, We had news uh, coming from Activision, uh, the makers and publishers of uh, the Call of Duty series. Uh, They were uh, lamenting uh, the poor performance (laughs) of Call of Duty Vanguard. Uh, And this is the most recent Call of Duty game that was set in the Second World War. Uh, Basically, this is a game where you play uh, as a kind of dirty dozen group of uh, allied soldiers as they attempt to uh, destroy uh, secret Nazi plans. Uh, and I don't want to spoil too much. I have been playing this game on and off 
uh, the past few months. Uh, but it, you know, it's very much a Call of Duty game, and so uh, they, uh, being Activision, they have blamed the poor performance of Call of Duty Vanguard on the World War II setting, uh, saying, "quote The game's World War II setting didn't resonate with some of our community." Uh, now, a little bit of background here, in case you haven't been keeping up with uh, kind of general game news. Uh, is the fact that Activision Blizzard has been uh, caught in the midst of a blizzard of controversy <laughs> uh, related to uh, sexual assault cases, uh, uh, HR uh, cover-ups related to those cases, um, all sorts of nasty, nasty business that has led uh, Activision Blizzard to become uh, a bit of a pariah in among uh, you know the gaming press, gaming community. Um, and also led to uh, the most recent takeover attempts uh, of Activision Blizzard by Microsoft. Uh, and kind of following along with that controversy is also the notion that a lot of game journalists put forward was that it's not necessarily the World War II setting that's to blame here, but the kind of stale nature of Call of Duty games. Uh, so, John, what do you make of this attempt uh, by Activision Blizzard to blame their historical setting for poor sales. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, Activision Blizzard or the leadership team there, I don't know. It just, I guess the word that comes to mind is failing, I suppose. It's just such a weird thing to say. I mean, I, I don't know if you can correct me, Bob. I feel like World War II remains the most popular period of human history <laughs> in Definitely. terms of like Definitely. whatever you want to sell, whatever you tv shows whatever you want to make people will come you know they yes. might kind of say hey how about we don't talk about france and english people all the time which is fine because there's way more you can talk about but i i'm yeah i am a i'm skeptical of that rationale well what do you think because i feel like you have some definitely have some stuff to say about this yeah i've been thinking a lot about world war ii settings recently i finally got to participate in the national world war ii museums uh uh, history conference, the Memory Wars conference that looked at uh, public memory and the Second World War, and I got to do a panel uh, for that conference on World War II games. And, you know, you just look at kind of recent historical games, even in just the past 10 years, and, you know, the most popular genre among, mm -hmm. you know, historical games is still World War II, right? Whether you're talking about triple-A titles, or you're talking about indie games, right? I think some of the most interesting um, World War II slash historical games more generally, most interesting games that have come out in the last 10 years have been World War II set. Uh, you know, stuff like, uh, you know, what's coming from Charles Games, uh, you know, uh, Paint Bucket Games and their um, uh, most recent indie title set in the Second World War, um, through the darkest of times, you know, those are games that have gotten a lot of attention, gotten a lot of press. Uh, and so it's not just AAA games that have been set in World War II and been successful. It's also indie games. So, you know, I would look at this and I would say, I think uh, the setting isn't to blame. I think it's more the problems related to Activision Blizzard, uh, you know, the sexual uh, discrimination cases against them. Um, uh, the lawsuits uh, by not just uh, individual employees, but by states. The so state of California, I think, has got an ongoing lawsuit mm -hmm. against them. 
Um, and then also, I think there is a lot of Call of Duty fatigue. Um, you know, I think that that series, uh, despite uh, incredible amounts of money put behind it, is feeling very, very stale. Um, you know, mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, it's still, uh, you know, it's a big, flashy AAA game, but at the same time, the base mechanics behind that game are left trigger, right trigger, right? left trigger to aim, right trigger to shoot over and over and over and over again. Um, and that's definitely the same thing that I've seen in Vanguard so far. It looks amazing. Uh, you know, it runs really well, but, it, you know, if you've played a Call of Duty game, then you've played Vanguard, even if you've never booted Vanguard yeah. ever. I also think, like, you know, we had a very long period of these kind of team shooter games being um, being the thing and being an interesting mixture of, like, super hardcore people and, like, anybody, you know, someone who buys the game and goes on and plays for a while and goes on and off and so on. But there's lots of changes. Like, I think one of the... An example, a success story would be, I think, Destiny 2 continues to sell a lot of stuff. Um, and they... It's an interesting hybridization of the single player and the multiplayer, right? And there's people our age who remember like having to set up the lobby for these type of games and things like that. And that that whole it takes a long time because they were so popular and they continue to be popular. But like, I think you're fighting an uphill battle a little bit with these. You really got to bring something, I think, to make these. And they do it all the time. I mean, you know, they, they, you know, people joke about season passes and stuff. But like, I think season passes give people a sense of why the hell they're playing this game. Um, and and then the other part of it is, I mean, listen. I know you agree with this, Bob. I mean, so many of the allegations being made against that company are truly vile. Mm-hmm. And if they're true, and I don't say that in a skeptical way, I'm just, you know, until proven and so on. But anyway, we've reason to believe that many of them are have merit. Um, you know, in addition to being immoral and horrifying, um, you can't create good work if that's the kind of environment that you're allowing to fester. You know, and I, I think of okay, you can say Blizzard is a different wing of that massive company from Activision, but their Warcraft 3 Reforged game, which there was some news about the last couple of days about might actually be an update to it soon, was a complete disaster. Mm-hmm. Like, it was just a disaster. Um, you know, there's a Diablo 2 mobile game coming in a couple of days and all this kind of stuff, but at the moment, you wouldn't know what's going to come from these people. Yeah, And it's it's sad, too. I don't even, I honestly don't know why they're even bothering to say, oh, it was the setting. Maybe there's some shareholder-related reason I'm not familiar with. I don't know. Annual it seems report ridiculous. to investors. Yeah, that was the reasoning. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it, it's it's just unfortunate because you just kind of like, well, I, I, I don't know. I don't know, where, yeah. <laughs> I don't know where they go from here. But saying the World War II is not a draw is pretty hysterical to yeah. me. Well, yeah. it is even more hysterical with regards to Call of Duty because the best-selling game in 2017 was Call of Duty World War II. So you're telling <laughs> right. me the market right. has changed completely in four and a half years, five years? I don't know. Yeah. So I don't yeah. buy it. Ugh. I don't buy it. Yeah. Me neither. All right. So that does it for recent news related to uh, historical games. Uh, so let's change focus now and talk a little bit about uh, games that are uh, set in historical settings or uh, touch on historical themes that could be coming out uh, later this year. And now, you know, usually this is the time of year that we look forward to E3. Uh, So E3, a big video game conference, you know, big announcements being made. uh, That no longer exists. It may never exist again. 
Uh, and so uh, we might be doing another podcast here in a month or so after some new game news has come out. Uh, but thus far, we've got a list of uh, several titles here that could be coming out here at the end of the year. Um, and I keep saying could. Uh, I you know I keep qualifying all of my statements because yeah. uh, there have been some really notable delays with relation to games, and I think. There was a lot of fear uh, starting in 2020 that the pandemic would have a big effect on game development. And I think uh, it, it might be the case that we don't actually know the full cost of that delay from the pandemic until this year. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the games that have come out in 2020, 2021 were games that were already pretty close to the finish line and maybe got a little bit of a delay, but not terrible delays. But now I think games that were supposed to come out this year, 2022, there might be a really significant delay because those were games that were just beginning development when the pandemic started. Uh, so uh, for all these games that I'm going to list off here, uh, these are games that uh, some of which have a, a firm uh, uh, release date, but then others are kind of up in the air. Um, so... With all that said, uh, our first game uh, is a game that's supposed to be coming out uh, in a couple days, uh, and it is called Card Shark. Uh, and this is a game that's going to be available on PC, uh, and it is uh, published by Devolver Digital, uh, kind of a favorite uh, publisher of uh, mine and of John's too. Uh, and this game uh, is an adventure game in which you play a card shark. Uh, in 18th century France and essentially by the look of the visuals and some of the gameplay trailers uh, it kind of looks like a Barry Lyndon uh, simulator yeah I don't know how to feel about all this 18th century revival in popular culture it's confusing <laughs> I wasn't expect we've got a um, our flag means death which is the HBO show there's a the outlander novels mm -hmm. and TV show um, I wasn't expecting that 1700 revival well i think people really like the the costumes and the art mm. and the setting for these uh, kind of historical fictions you mentioned a tv show um you know novels and then this game and uh, but i don't i don't really know if the people who are interested in these settings are aware of the politics of these of this era <laughs> uh, which uh, are pretty reprehensible but uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Barry Lyndon uh, very famous uh, well I think very famous uh, Stanley Kubrick film uh, which follows a kind of a roguish uh, figure uh, in 18th century France uh, who is a bit of a card shark uh, and so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see what this is like. You know, I think card games have become very popular uh, again. You know, I think they kind of had a revival in the early 2000s, and now it's kind of coming around here again uh, 20 years later. Uh, so we'll see. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's uh, this Card Shark game. This is coming out on June 2nd, uh, and it's currently on sale for $17 on Steam. So I don't know. Might might be worth a look. I'm excited to speaking is just, you know, this podcast about historical video games and um, I want to see more of them and I want the ones that come out to succeed. And people are excited about this game in advance of it coming out, which is very cool. Um, I, you know, 
I hope it mixes the different mechanics well. But it's interesting you mentioned, Bob, in an era where, you know, video game websites that cover video games will take explicit political positions, like in current day American political positions. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of people writing, you know, uh, a, a guy I know on Twitter called out a certain website I won't name for complaining about um, capitalism and a pandemic leading to PS5 shortages, which I think is a slight misunderstanding of the alternatives to capitalism, like, you know, how they produce PlayStations or don't. But, um, yeah, like, it's the kind of people who are going to be featured in a story about well-to-do socialites in 1740s France. These are not the kind of people that we currently look look up to, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, this is like, like, imagine 55 Elon Musks, you know? Yeah. I, I don't know, yeah. in, in a room. This, yeah. But I'm glad it's not crippling games like this. And obviously, people can just make the um, what they're looking for compartmentalized, or do you know what I mean? Like exactly. people respect the audience to distinguishing the things. But but I am glad. I'm glad it, that it isn't leading to a kind it, of a puritanical. You must not play yeah, games like this. It's, kind of it's us historians who are sitting back, kind of chuckling to ourselves <laughs> about all this. Like you said, you know, it's like the type of people who are you know very hardcore politicized now. Uh, about current politics wouldn't bat an eyelash about playing a game like this. I think, yeah, that point is really well, really well put, John. Well, and it's challenging too. I mean, because I I had a great interaction with a a really intelligent student a month ago or so in class where we were talking about uh, Andrew Carnegie and she was raising some very valid critiques of Carnegie and how, you know, people give him a free pass historically and so on and so on. And I'd say, okay, but like, what was, you know, you realize the alternative was he kept all his money to himself or he paid for the libraries but did other things that were not cool things. Like, those were, those were kind of the two options. Like, there was no, you know, there was nobody else out there that was, like, being wholesome. So if, if the games end up having these, like, you know, heart of gold type elites in 1700s France, like, oh, yeah, sure, okay. That makes the game more enjoyable. Yes. Historically, those people are pretty thin on the ground, oh, I'm afraid oh to say. Oh, my gosh, yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, it reminds me, um, there's been a, uh, a recent um, HBO show. Uh, Julian Fellows, who created Downton Abbey, uh, has a new uh, HBO Max show uh, called Gilded Age. And the main protagonists uh, in that show are a robber baron and his wife. And they are presented mm. as though they are breaking up kind of ancient regime uh, New York society, uh, improving <laughs> life, democratizing life. Uh, and there's some, there's some notion that, you know, the, the robber baron in this case, uh, is, you know, doing, you know, this kind of business work, uh, to kind of, uh, level the playing field for the average man, uh, in American life. And I'm just sitting back, and watching this unfold, and I'm like, this is complete nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the, the uh, there's some moments in the show where they, uh, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but there's some moments in the show where this robber baron uh, in question has a hard edge to him that he's not very sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, he is presented as the hero, right? He is presented as... right. Uh, the one who's kind of leading the charge for change, and it's it's really it's wild. You know, I sit there as a historian of that time period and just chuckle, just constantly chuckling to myself. But maybe I shouldn't be surprised. You know, this is Julian Fellows. Uh, he wrote Down Abbey. Uh, he created Down Abbey. Down Abbey 
very famous for presenting Edwardians as decent, kind-hearted uh, people <laughs> working them. alongside their uh, their humble servants, uh, you know, <laughs> arm in arm. Uh, so, you know, maybe I shouldn't uh, be surprised. All of his work is kind of a, uh, um, uh, I don't know what the, the Tory version of Lost Cause narrative is, but that's what it is. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so our next game uh, comes from uh, Black Mill Games, and these are the makers of a kind of recent... Uh, FPS multiplayer uh, World War One uh, action games, uh, including Verdun and Tannenberg. Uh, and later this year, uh, hopefully this summer, uh, they are going to release uh, a new World War One FPS multiplayer game set in Italy uh, during the First World War uh, called Zonzo. Uh, and so this is uh, following uh, soldiers along the Italian front uh, during the First World War, so I would imagine a lot of troops uh, from Italy, from Austria, um, and uh, you know, Blackmail Games. Their uh, output has been really uh, remarkable. You know, they've done Verdun. I think it was their first one in 2015. Tannenberg came out uh, in 2017. So now we've got a new game, new setting, uh, still First World War, and. Uh, from what I can tell, their games, these uh, World War One multiplayer games, have been very popular. So good for them. I hope I hope it comes out this summer. But even if it doesn't, you know, I wish them luck. Yeah, me too. We talked about this one before. I think at some point during COVID, that big, or the you know the the lockdown phase of COVID. Um, yeah, I'm excited about it. It just seems it's. I'm hopeful for them too because I feel like it's familiar enough that it will it will get a lot of the audience they've gotten for previous games, but. I know this, this this Italian front twist is cool. I'm yes. I'm excited for it. Yes, and you know, as a historian, uh, you know, the Italian front is one that I don't know uh, very well. I know that there was, um, um, I think, some campaign missions from Battlefield One uh, that were set uh, on this mm -hmm. front, uh, and uh, you know, and again, it's kind of one of these remarkable things where we've got um, a game series, historical game series. Uh, that is exploring kind of lesser known areas of, uh, you know, well-known histories. And I think back to our earlier conversation here in this pod about uh, Ubisoft and uh, AC Valhalla, you know, going to Ireland, right? And I kind of feel right. like this is a similar sort of thing, right? So if you look at the trajectory of these games, you know, going to Verdun first, that makes a lot of sense. You know, everybody kind of uh, knows a little bit about the Western Front, uh, Tannenberg, you know, okay, that's a bit more of a stretch. Eastern Front during the First World War. Uh, but now with the Zonzo, you know, going to the Italian Front, I mean, this is uh, something that doesn't often even get into history textbooks, uh, particularly mm -hmm. in the States. So this is cool. This is the kind of stuff that I like to see that I'm interested in. And, you know, hopefully it, it works for the developers. Hopefully it works for the player community. All right, uh, moving on and kind of moving into uh, really not sure if this is coming out this year territory <laughs> uh, is uh, Vicky 3, Victoria 3 uh, from Paradox. Now, this originally, I think, had a release date in late 2022. And now looking at the Steam page, it says the release date is to be announced. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, that's, that doesn't bode well. Uh, for <laughs> the chances this might actually come out uh, this year. But uh, John is kind of our resident paradox expert. What are your feelings <laughs> about Victoria 3? 
I'm pretty skeptical it's coming out yeah. uh, this year. I mean, I hope it does. I'm pretty skeptical. Um, what I'll say real quick is that I think their updates have slowed a bit as well. I think that obviously all the development developers are affected by COVID, as we talked about, and still are. I think with Victoria 3, I'm, I was still, I'm excited that game is coming out, and I'm very happy that Paradox is taking seriously the fact that making a game about 19th century imperialism in 2022 is something that has to be, they've got to tread carefully. And I don't mean for political reasons or being, you know, the game being boycotted. Or, I just mean in terms of to make it a better game and to think about how to talk about these things. That's a tough thing to navigate. And I think that because of the game company that they are, that's probably creating mechanical issues as well. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, like, like, so, you know, because at the end of the day, you, if you're playing the British, you're going to be doing things that aren't great, really, because mm-hmm. that's just the way it is, or any of the European imperialist states. So I, I suspect they've just got a lot on their plates. So yeah. I'd, lo- I'd love to be playing it before Christmas this year. I am skeptical. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going down a list of their developer updates here, but they've got uh, entries related to colonization, related to revolutions, Mm-hmm. Uh, related to uh, the Opium Wars, um, related to the American Civil War. So it does seem like they're kind of steering into the topic slavery as well. Uh, they're mm-hmm. st- steering into the topics that could see them get into trouble. Uh, but I think I would rather see that than them trying to treat the 19th century with kid clubs. So, you know. Uh, I think, uh, you know, it is a chance. It is uh, a kind of a risk, but, you know, I would rather them try that than to kind of pretend like these things didn't exist, which I yeah. think games uh, prior to this point, uh, including Victoria 2, maybe didn't do as well. Um, so, yeah. I think it's a very, it's, I'm not quite sure how they're viewing it internally. I mean, obviously they're saying nice things about it, but I mean, it's a potentially incredibly ambitious game in the sense that they're Crusader Kings and Hearts of Iron games, which have made a lot of money for that company and just undeservedly so. Um, Hearts of Iron is kind of fixed. It's almost like a scenario, right? It's yes, World War II, really. Yes. Um, Crusader Kings is not like that at all, but at the same time, it's this medieval kind of focus and everything else. Yeah. EU4, Europa Universalis, those games are the true global sandbox games. And this strikes me as a golden opportunity to... to to hit the two so it's a sandbox game but at the end of the day if you want to go into opium wars you can do that yeah you know as the chinese for example and try and reverse what actually happened or if you want to engage with slavery in a in a, in a mechanical like in a video game way i there's so much they have to do i think is it old world tried to address slavery in that kind of way and the kind of this is what happens if you do a lot of games have done that i guess right yeah. like stellaris actually has done that with robot slaves and things like that in that game um, so that that's why I'm skeptical as well. I think that for what they're hoping to do, it's 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 just a huge, it's a huge, it's just a huge ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah it really is. Yeah, and you know, I think it's interesting you compare this to their other games. I feel like, um, you know, I'm not speaking for both of us, but I feel like with their other games, their other big tentpole historical strategy games, um, I feel like historical memory is kind of settled on what they feel about those time periods. So particularly with Hearts of Iron, I feel like the kind of big arguments about representation related to the Second World War have already been fought in some ways. You know, people kind of know what to expect and it's not really that controversial the way that Paradox approaches it. And I would argue the same thing for 
Crusader Kings, right? I think that that mm-hmm. game, that kind of argument over that has been kind of settled, particularly by CK2. But I feel like uh, I don't really have a good guess or a good notion as to how much people in the gaming community know about the 19th century and also mm-hmm. how they feel about it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm really curious as to how this will land with players, with journalists, and with historians, because I feel like when it comes to something like World War II, when it comes to uh, the medieval time period, these are time periods where there is a lot of exchange between public scholarship and interested audiences related to those time periods. Mm -hmm. I don't feel that same way about the 19th century, right? I don't feel like there's a kind of a wellspring of interest in the public for 19th century history, you know, other than the American Civil War. Um, So I'm really curious as to what the public reaction is going to be to this. um, And then also how historians respond to it. Um, So, yeah. I think the 19th century as well is in this very interesting sweet spot, or the opposite of a sweet spot, maybe, where, you know, because I I teach 19th century a lot here at Center, and um, we often do Heart of Darkness, which is the Joseph Conrad novel about on which the American film Apocalypse Now is based, of traveling into Africa to, you know, to recover this guy Kurtz. And that's a, a book which is both regarded as one of the great classics of English literature, but the Nigerian author Chinua Achebe famously said that Conrad was just a bloody racist, you know, and he hated that book. And we talk about that. And I'm always, we talk about scientific racism and everything else. And obviously 1850, 1870, 1880, these, it's a long time ago. Mm-hmm. But I, I, but I think there is, when the 19th century is discussed, it's both, there's an assumption that it's bad compared to the way things are now, particularly for obvious reasons, the Civil War and America before the Civil War. And after the Civil War, actually. Um, <laughs> but also, you know, scientific racism, for example, right? This is something that people are not, I don't know if they're being taught it in high school or not, mm-hmm. but certainly when I'm talking to students about it, there's this sense of discovery, and joy isn't the right word. Sometimes it's anger, for sure. But I don't know. I, they, they do, I agree with you. The 19th century is not necessarily something that is obviously immediately of interest to people, yeah. but I, I think that as soon as people start to dig into it, there's this immediately visceral reaction. Yeah. You yeah. know, well, yeah, because it was it was rough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. no kidding. And, <laughs> you know, along the same lines as to your talk just now about uh, scientific racism, I do the same thing with the perspective of the world at that time about mm-hmm. empire, right? Empire as a political mm-hmm. formation, empire as mm-hmm. a way to run your country. And, you know, one of the toughest things for students to get over is the fact that the vast majority of people, particularly in the developed world at this time in the 19th century, thought empire was the ideal form of political formation, right? Empire didn't have any Mm -hmm. sort of terrible connotation with it unless you were (laughs) an American or if you were, um, you know, in one of these colonized uh, nations uh, or countries or kingdoms. Um, But if you were in Europe at this time, empire was a force for good, right? Empire was the way that you were going to overcome uh, kind of ancient regime difficulties, uh, not only mm-hmm. with politics, but with culture um, and with technology. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think that'll be an interesting thing, too, to see what is the gaming audience's reaction, uh, what is journalistic reaction to the way that this game deals with the issue of colonialism, of empire, of imperialism. 
because that's always a hard thing for the students to realize. It's like they get in there and they got these ideals from popular culture. It's like, well, empire is mm-hmm. bad. Why would anybody want to do this? And it's like, well, see, at the time they kind of thought that other formations of politics were really bad, right? Republicanism mm-hmm. was bad. Um, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, that led to something like the French Revolution, where a lot of people got murdered. And so empire, right? This kind of, mm-hmm. you know, monarchy striving to create a, a solid political system and then dominating other regions of the world. This was seen as kind of, this is what you do as a civilized nation. This is, this is good. Mm-hmm. This is great. You know, empires are fantastic. Big fan. Two thumbs up. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, our next game, uh, one that has got a firm release date on September 8th, uh, is a game called Steel Rising. Uh, and if you don't know what this is, this is a Souls-like game that is going to be set in a steampunk version of the French Revolution. And so I have uh, recently watched uh, some trailers of this, uh, saw about 20 minutes of gameplay footage, and this is very much a um, Souls-like game. Uh, it looks like it plays a lot like uh, uh, Bloodborne, uh, Elden Ring as well. Um, and uh, I'm really curious as to what this game delivers in terms of story because I haven't seen much related to story. The little synopsis that I've got here uh, is that King Louis XVI has a mechanical army that suppressed the revolution <laughs> with blood and bolts. And so you are playing as a Republican automaton uh, designed specifically to win the robot war and wrest Paris from the royalist cold, unfeeling hands. <laughs> so, um, John, uh, as a resident uh, history respawn <laughs> Souls-like expert, what do you make of this? what you've seen of this game so far? I mean, it's definitely exciting. I mean, I'm, I'm a sucker for anything Souls-like anyway and you know as you know bob as our listeners know there's a long history of kind of using robotic figures as kind you know in science fiction as a kind of an analog for either slaves or the downtrodden or whatever so i mean what i've seen looks great so you know the the story you're sharing with us um from Operator shotgun has a little, nice little subheading style meets substance question mark i'm like yes i think that's definitely the question because i just <laughs> it looks great and it's exciting and i think it's a great idea um it's one of those i think it's one of those collection ideas um that could arguably become um cliched except that um i think the french revolution's an inspired choice actually despite the fact it's theoretically obvious i feel like it's not been done that much except maybe for the assassin's creed game a few years ago which yeah. became very famous for being a disaster sadly initially technically yeah. being broken yeah so um yeah so i that's what i got to say i think that um this has got a real shot i think there's these are these are this is fertile ground mixing yes. the robots is downtrodden with french revolution stuff good going back to the the the, the card shark stuff this is the antithesis of that. Yes. Right? Go, ki- yes. go kill yourself some elites. You yes. Know? Yeah. Break up a <laughs> break up a, a party of elites playing cards or uh, playing chess. Yeah. And, you know, grab them by the wig and mess them up. Yes. That's good. Yeah. Um, so uh, the rest of this list, these are games that are uh, very questionable as to whether or not they're going to come out mm. this year. So I'm just going to list them off here. Very quickly, uh, Company of Heroes 3 uh, from Relic Entertainment. This is the famous uh, real-time strategy series. And this had an initial release date 
of I think August or September of 2022, but now it is uh, TBA, uh, so we'll see if that happens. Another game that is uh, scheduled for Q4 2022 is a game called War Hospital, uh, and this is uh, coming from Brave Lamb Studio. Uh, and this is a uh, set in the First World War where you are playing a, a real-time strategy game set inside a medical corps. Uh, so you are trying to uh, save lives rather than take lives uh, in the First World War, it looks like on the Western Front. Uh, then a Plague Tale Requiem. Uh, and this is coming from Focus Entertainment. Uh, and this is the uh, sequel uh, to a Plague Tale, uh, which uh, is a game that, unfortunately, History Respawn hasn't covered yet, <laughs> despite it being <laughs> out for many years, and uh, despite it being a game that I have purchased on several different platforms, <laughs> I've just <laughs> never played it. And so I'm hoping that this uh, the release of this game, which may be coming out this year, uh, will encourage me to finally, finally get into it. Uh, and then uh, you'll have to help me on the pronunciation of this one, but it's it looks like Inklonati, uh, and this is a game uh, that is coming out from uh, Yaza Games, uh, and it is a game in which you play uh, in medieval manuscripts, uh, in particular the uh, marginalia of medieval manuscripts with the kind of crazy um, uh, animals, uh, particularly rabbits, uh, that have weapons and swords and spears and all of this. And if you've been on Twitter in the last 10 years, you've seen these uh, pop up on your timeline. Uh, and this looks like it's uh, is still a planned release date of uh, AD 2022. <laughs> Not 2022, but AD 2022. <laughs> um, and so those are some of the other games uh, that are on my list. Uh, John, any uh, thoughts on these potential upcoming 2022 releases um it's trite they all look really good <laughs> excited about <laughs> all of them um i think i think war hospital in particular is really interesting that's a long-running question of violence video games and so on and so on but yes. also we're always gonna have games where you shoot things and blow things up so uh, war hospitals i love their animating idea so mm -hmm. I, that, that's exciting and it looks great it looks like a beautiful game so. yeah yeah, I'm yeah. really. I think that's the one I'm most interested in uh, out of this list. Although Company of Heroes, you know, this is a series that mm. was very popular. I think the first Company of Heroes came out in 2006, and that game was remarkable because it kind of revitalizes real-time strategy games that genre uh, when it looked like that genre was dead, uh, and then all of a sudden in the mid 2000s, that game comes out and was extremely popular. And then real-time strategy games kind of went through another renaissance, maybe with uh, uh, StarCraft II, uh, and then it finally died, and then it died for good. Mm -hmm. um, so it's interesting to see, you know, RTS games look like they're becoming more popular. Um, you know, we've got Company of Heroes, we've had things like Iron Harvest uh, recently. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, you know, I don't know. This one looks like it's going to be set... Uh, in uh, European theater, World War II, but it looks like I think it's set in Italy and in southern France, uh, so kind of a, a area of uh, you know uh, World War II history that doesn't get covered nearly as much as say um, you know Battle of the Bulge or you know even uh, Russian uh, Germany on the Eastern Front. So yeah, I'm curious. I'll, we'll see see what happens, and we'll see if these games come out. And you know, good good luck to all the developers working. 
Uh, now, you know, I'm, I'm sure many of them may be coming back into the office. I don't know, but, uh, you know, stay safe and uh, hopefully you can avoid crunch as well. As we all know, that's uh, kind of a really awful part of game development. But, you know, hopefully these things come out and they're successful because I think, you know, like John said earlier, we all want uh, good and interesting historical games. Um, you know, I think it helps us and it you know helps the show as well i think it's really great it's great to have these games uh okay so uh that does it for kind of historical game topics uh in the news does it for upcoming releases so let's change now to talking a little bit about what john and i've been playing recently and john why don't you go first i feel like i've been talking a lot during this episode (laughs) uh so tell me a bit about what you've been playing uh either historical game or otherwise well, I uh, I guess it's been a while since we met because I I actually played a whole bunch of Elden Ring, um, like everyone else in the world apparently. That incredibly well, well, uh, great selling game, and uh, I'm nothing to add to that extremely heavily covered game except that I also liked Elden Ring. Um, and if you've never played a Dark Souls game, you should consider Elden Ring. It won't be easy, but it there's things that makes it make it accessible. Uh, more recently, I've been playing Horizon Forbidden West. Um, which have you finished that game? Bob? I did. Yes. I, I okay. I think I played it for about 45, 46 hours or so. Oh goodness. Okay. Well, I'm a couple hours in, so let's see. Um, maybe it'll be my summer, the summer of summer of Johnny playing Horizon every night. But um, I uh, I really like the first game a lot, and we've talked on this podcast before about um, how I think that first game can and should be considered kind of an historical game in lots of ways. I'm only a couple hours into the sequel. The sequel doesn't feel historical in the same way in the sense that you know that the first game was all about kind of unraveling the mystery of you know so for people who don't know these games are set in some kind of uh strange world where human beings are in a kind of a tribal-ish not super developed in most ways technologically kind of societies and the landscape is controlled by uh, robots that look like dinosaurs or other kinds of you know ancient kind of creatures and over the course of the first game won't spoil too much um you discover this is a post-apocalyptic scenario a dystopian scenario so this is our world a thousand years in the future and i, I feel so far in the sequel that that's kind of like yeah we figured we settled that part um and at least so far the game is about finding a way to save the world that the main character inhabits. Um, but while saying that, I love it. Like I'm currently at a part, a very early area in the game, which is characterized by these massive satellite dishes. Um, and one of the kind of, I don't know if you call them factions or not, or communities in the game of NPCs, they live, they have converted these massive kind of, you know, late 20th century era satellite dishes into places where they live. And the game is full of stuff like that. And I love it. And it's I, I just love this. I love this one of your games. Um, I love these dystopian games that are kind of like fake archaeology almost. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like fake future archaeology of the world we now live in. And um, so that's been really cool. And also, if you did like the first game, you should 100% play the sequel, I think. I'm, yeah. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. Early days. What, 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 what do you think, Bob? I mean, it's in the whole history part. Like, does it kind of continue in that vein? or It does. Don't and spoil yeah. it for me, but you know. Yeah, I don't want to spoil <laughs> it for you, but I would say that that material that you liked in the first game with that plot there's a mm-hmm. lot more of that that comes in the second act of this game. So okay, don't awesome. worry. There's more to learn about the past world and how that relates to <laughs> the present in that game. And I would also say that there's a really good cast of characters that also come in the second act. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of fun exploration 
of the history of that world that occurs in interactions with those other characters. So your main character in this mm-hmm. game is Aloy, uh, who is aware, she's aware of everything. She knows mm-hmm. what's going on with the planet. She knows about the past, about how they got there. Um, but there are other characters that you kind of bring into your inner circle that don't know all those stories and begin to explore that past world. And they surface a lot of good conversation between those characters and Aloy in which you begin to learn more about uh, the past, but then also how that relates to the present. And uh, I have, I've been stewing on an article idea, something I want to try to get published uh, that is about uh, the experience with NPCs in that game with the kind of your cohort of characters and how that experience is very similar to the experience of uh, sharing an archive with other historians, right? Kind of, Mm. you go and do work, you kind of do research on your particular field, and then you sit down, you know, afterwards in a seminar room, and you kind of talk about what you find (laughs) and how that relates to somebody else and their research. And it's, it's really a cool, cool experience. And I think, you know, as a scholar, as a historian, I think you'll really like it, uh, the, okay. those interactions with those characters, because it, it, it reminds me a lot of graduate classes. It reminds me a lot of sitting down with a colleague uh, during a coffee break in an archive, just kind of talking about the archive, some of the things that you find, some of the crazy quotes you find <laughs> you know, from like a 19th century bureaucrat that you just can't wait to share with somebody else. Mm-hmm. That, it, that kind of feeling is very... Huh. is really realized in that game. So I would I would really encourage you, if you can get past the opening phase, which lasts way too long, it's like six <laughs> hours, but if yeah, you can I get know. past that, if you can get into the second act where you get with your group of uh, kind of fellow archaeologists slash historians, then mm-hmm. I think it really takes off. It really hits a nice groove. Well, that's awesome. I was going to say, I mean, some people aren't big on the story from these games. I think the stories are great. Um, and I think the characters are really well realized. This is off topic, but worth pointing out as well. I was amused because I haven't played the first game in a long time. And I just kind of read a recap. So I've been using the character bios. Who is this guy again? Who yeah. is this person again? And in the first couple of hours of the game, every kind of previous character she encounters is in love with her. I'm like, oh, <laughs> was this in the first game? I don't remember this. They're all in love with her. And I get it. I mean, she saved the world. So like, yeah. you know. That's pretty attractive. Yeah. Um, or it might just be she's the historian bringing information from the archive. That's in my experience as well. People just become madly attracted to me. You you know, no, not really. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I know that's great. That's great. Yeah. I enjoy it. The other, my other meta historical experience playing video games has been um, with Dune Spice Worlds. Um, do you know much about this game, Bob? I don't. So please enlighten me. So this game was announced a few months ago, and the film hadn't come out yet, the latest film by uh, Denis Villeneuve, um, which I really like, and I'm, I'm, I'm a Dune nerd. And Great um, pronunciation, people... by the way. I would have Oh, yes, that. well, Denis, Denis. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, uh, it's almost like I'm watching uh, YouTube videos of Denis Villeneuve when I should be working. Um, and uh, <laughs> so uh, I think when the game was announced, people got very excited because it looks like an RTS, and... Um, a lot of people listening will be familiar with the Dune 2000 video game of the 1990s, which was um, which was an RTS and was a really good RTS. And in fact, was kind of in many ways 
super important RTS. And in, in fact, it, it, it heavily inspired games that followed in the next five to six years Command and, and helped us step. Yeah, exactly. It really helped to define what we now know as the standard base building RTS approach. And older listeners in particular will remember just how huge that was in video games for so long. Like that was the game. The that dominant was the, everyone, genre. Yeah. 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 Everyone you knew who played video games on a computer played one of those games. Everyone. Like Command & Cocker you mentioned was just this huge you know, game. Warcraft, Everyone played that game. Warcraft 2. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then later on, StarCraft, StarCraft 2. And so Dune 2000 was really important. People, I think people got excited. So the game now is still in early access. Um, so it's not quite an RTS. It's actually kind of an interesting hybrid of kind of a civilization-type game and an RTS. Um, and so it has that, it's not turn-based. It has that paradox-style thing where you can pause anytime you want. And it looks like an RTS in the sense that you're kind of establishing... You're building buildings that allow you to either train certain kinds of troops or to um, uh, uh, gather certain kinds of resources. That's an RTS function that's there. But the rest of the game really is a civilization-type game. With, there's a tech tree, which actually has a big impact on what you can actually do. Um, and, and so it's, it's really interesting. So the thing I like about it um, is that... Uh, it feels like those early Dune games, actually. Um, it kind of has taken on a lot of the artistic ideas from the first two Dune games. And for people who don't know, the first Dune game that preceded Dune 2000 was kind of our Dune 2, and then Dune 2000 was an updated Dune 2. The first Dune game was kind of a weird game in that for four-fifths of that game, it was an adventure game where you would fly to Arakeen and talk to Duke Leto, and then you would get in your ornithopter and fly to a siege, and you would talk to Stilgar, and it was all like dialogue trees. And then for the last fifth of the game, it became a kind of a weird planet-wide kind of RTS-y type thing where the Sardaukar were landing you to try and defend yourself against these crack Imperial troops. I loved that game. Thoroughly weird and strange game. And so what I like about Dune Spice Worlds is those guys have clearly played those games or are familiar with them. And it feels like those games, it's a beautiful looking game. Um, I'm really fascinated by the kind of mixing together. So for example, let's say you pick the Atreides who are like the good guys, as it were, the protagonist of the first book is a member of the Atreides family. You'll pick two advisors um, who bring their own kind of attributes to it. And then other elements of the game are very mechanical as well. Like you have agents that you can put in different kinds of things. Your agent can go and work against the Harkonnens, who are the bad guys, or who can work with the Fremen, or who can do and so on and so on. It's a lot, though. I think this is coming across. I'm trying to explain it. Um, the game is very playable. It's not one of these games where you're sitting there going, God, what do I do? It's not really like that. Like you can just you can get into it and you can kind of play it. But I'm never confident I'm really playing it even remotely well. Uh. Um and so the fact that it looks so nice and sounds so good uh, is pretty cool. And so, yeah. and so I think, you know, historically, meta-wise, as I say, I certainly, personally, I'm seeing a lot of the DNA of those early games of the 1990s in this game, yeah. which, bring, which brings me great pleasure and I think is really cool. Um, but while saying that, they've, they're doing their own thing. It's really interesting. I think if, I, if you're interested in Dune as a concept, if you like the books, if you like the latest film... Um, you should totally, totally look at this this yeah. game. Um, if you're not a big Dune person, I think this game is it's out there, and you should maybe you know think put it on a list somewhere. But it's up. See what happens when it finally comes out. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you know Frank Herbert's Dune, the first book. Um, you know, the whole series. Uh, there's been a lot of articles because of the most recent movie about how that book 
uh, and his writing was heavily inspired by actual historical events, uh, you know, particularly mm-hmm. the story of Lawrence of Arabia, uh, you know, in the First World War, in the wake of the First World War. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of kind of historicity that is built into Dune as a setting. Mm-hmm. So I think it's fair game, uh, you know, to cover for History Respawn to, you know, anywhere else, honestly. Uh, and then I'm also really interested by the fact that it is a real-time 4X game because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we've just passed uh, talking about uh, Sid Meier's Civilization. Of course, the very first uh, developer build of Sid Meier's Civilization, um, you know, way back in uh, 1990, 1991, uh, it was a real-time game. Uh, and mm-hmm. so uh, it was only later on in development that they changed it to a turn-based game and so uh you know this is kind of a a way to return uh the 4x genre back to uh, what you might say is its original (laughs) developer roots you know having it in real time and like you said it it borrows a lot from paradox game and their pause button but you know i think it is interesting that we've got so much innovation recently you know in the 30th anniversary Mm -hmm. of civilization we've got so many new innovations with 4x games you know whether that's coming from amplitude with humankind or uh you know coming from mohawk with um old worlds uh or you know uh, this doom spice war uh, wars uh game i think it's it's really exciting as a as a fan of 4x games uh mm-hmm. i'm really intrigued by this and i would say the only thing that puts me off is the fact that it's early access uh i just have had bad experiences yeah. with early access games but from what you say i mean it sounds like it plays pretty well so far it plays pretty well i think that you know people who've reviewed it have talked about this as well i think whereas civ is so successful at locking you into the like one more turn type thing dune spice war struggles a little bit actually i think in it's it's hard i think they're still fine tuning how the pacing of a playthrough is going to work because it it kind of seems to be designed as a game that you'll just play as the atreides and come back and play as the harkonnen and you know it, it's it's not really I think it's being thought of as a come in and out type experience or, you know, play it a certain way experience or playthroughs, multiple playthroughs type game. Um, but I, I find I'm hectically, manically trying to keep things in some kind of control. And then suddenly I'm just kind of sitting there watching stuff. You know, it just kind of stops, yeah. you know. So so it's kind of, um, I think they're still fine tuning that kind of stuff. But like I said, it looks beautiful. It sounds beautiful. And yeah, I mean, you know, the, for people who don't know in the books, there's these huge themes of jihad and all the other things. And this notion of the inevitability of violence and destruction rooted, as you just said, in these historical terms. It's also a very important book, I think, in terms of um, how science fiction writers talk about ecology and yes. like the environment. Of course, yeah. that's the whole concept of a, a desert planet being deliberately kept sterile for economic reasons. Um, and uh, I haven't seen a lot of that yet in the game, but that might just be because I haven't made enough progress in the game. So so let's see. Yeah. Well, great. Awesome. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're enjoying it, at least. Uh, I've been very yeah. skeptical, but, you know, I think I might have to dive into it, especially because so many planned releases, not just historical game releases, but just game releases have been put off uh, into next year. Like, there's really kind of not much coming out the rest yeah. of the year. Um, so I might actually have to play through some of my gaming backlog, which <laughs> has been gathering digital dust. Yeah. 
Everyone's saying that. We're all saying that. And I still find ways to like, I'll probably play, I'll probably playing card shark Thursday night, you know, it's just kind of, <laughs> uh, well, uh, let me, uh, let me talk a little bit about what I've been playing. And, um, this next session, uh, is called, uh, Bob's embarrassment of riches and the embarrassing gaming tech <laughs> that he buys because of those riches. Um, so for the longest time, the past decade or so, uh, I've been extremely poor, right? I've had student loan debt. I've had very poor paying jobs. And now in the past couple of years, I've got a little bit of money. Uh, student debt is gone. And so now I've been uh, finding out what I would spend my money on if I had cash. And it turns out it's a very expensive video game uh, hardware. <laughs> <laughs> so over the last six months, I uh, purchased a Oculus Rift 2, a uh, Quest 2 uh, from Meta or Facebook. I kind of had to hold my nose uh, when I did that. Uh, but I was really interested in playing uh, some virtual reality. I hadn't gotten a chance to do that except at uh, gaming conferences. Uh, and in particular, I was really interested in playing uh, Medal of Honor Above and Beyond, uh, which is the VR uh, World War II game uh, coming from Respawn Entertainment and published by Electronic Arts. Uh, and if you've been following um, History Respawn, you know that I just did a uh, podcast recording with Peter Hirschman, the director of this game and uh peter hirschman uh was at the very beginning of the medal of honor series uh famous world war ii fps series that came out originally on uh playstation uh way back uh, i think in 98 99 somewhere in there uh very popular series that uh, helped to encourage actually uh, call of duty um you know vince sampella uh, and others who worked eventually on call of duty uh, for Activision, they started out as developers on the Medal of Honor series. So there's a lot of kind of shared DNA between the, those two games. And while Call of Duty has kind of gone off and become, you know, this multi-billion dollar property, Medal of Honor had always kind of cleaved closer to the historical record and uh, had, as a result, I think, become uh, less exciting, less popular uh, than Call of Duty. Uh, but uh, here in 2020, uh, they released a game for uh, Oculus uh, called Above and Beyond. And this is a, a game that's definitely a throwback uh, to those old Medal of Honor games from uh, the late 90s, early 2000s. And you are playing uh, as an American OSS officer uh, who is running around uh, in Europe during the Second World War. Uh, joining up with the French resistance, uh, fighting against the, the Nazis in all sorts of different areas of the world. Uh, and it also includes uh, a really fascinating collection of historical documentaries, uh, nonfiction documentaries uh, that included uh, the short documentary um, uh, called Celeste that won the Academy Award, the Oscar uh, for best uh, short form documentary at last year's Academy Awards. So uh, really amazing uh, piece of kind of historical uh, storytelling uh, that comes wrapped in a VR game, which uh, I think means that not many people have played it, unfortunately. And <laughs> I would say that, you know, for myself, I've really enjoyed my time with this game. Uh, you know, it definitely... Uh, ticks all the boxes from older Medal of Honor games in terms of the action, um, in terms of the gameplay. 
but I would say that I've been having a little bit of trouble with with this game, but then the Oculus in general because I get I've been getting a little seasick uh, from playing VR games, and uh, the Oculus Quest Two, uh, it is a uh, uh, it is a headset uh, version of uh, room scale VR. Uh, so when you get in there, you can uh, literally uh, paint. You do a digital paint job of your living room or of wherever else you're playing. And the Quest 2 remembers uh, the boundaries that you've set using the paint. And so you can play room scale VR games uh, as though you've got sensors set up uh, in your house. Uh, and so I've been able to play this game and other VR games for about 30 minutes to 45 minutes. But then after that, I start feeling a little nauseous and I, I have to put the set set down. So I've played this game for about four to five hours, I would say. Um, but there's a lot more content that I just haven't been able to get through because I just I don't feel well enough playing VR. Uh, so, bummer. yeah, that's the story. And so the documentaries, are they kind of like. How do I put? So is it like in the in the game menu? Can you just watch one of them, and now you're in the virtual cinema type thing? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the gallery menu, uh, which includes all the historical documentaries, that is in a separate uh, section of you know kind of the main main menu uh, for the game. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting to me is that these gallery documentaries they're all like uh, between like seven and fifteen minutes long. Uh, they all kind of touch upon topics and ideas that are in the campaign, right, in the fictional campaign. Uh, but at the same time, these documentaries, they aren't uh, presented to you while you're playing the game. So mm -hmm. in other words, in order to get the documentaries, you've got to know where they are and go into the menu and watch them. But you aren't prompted to watch them as part mm -hmm. of your gaming experience. So... Hmm. it's kind of strange because you know if you look at this from the outside you know you're talking about a vr game so not many people have vr at least compared to consoles or pc so that's a problem mm -hmm. but then even further along with that uh, you know fewer people who play this game are gonna go into a separate menu to watch the gallery documentaries right you think about mm -hmm. you know how many times uh, do even dedicated players even mess around with different modes? Uh, you know, mm -hmm. you can think, for instance, of Call of Duty. There's some Call of Duty players who don't even play the campaign, right? They just play mm -hmm. the multiplayer. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like with each step of this game, I feel like it's kind of it's kind of cutting into its audience, right? On the first level, mm -hmm. it's VR. On the second level, mm -hmm. it's the gallery mode that you have to access from the menu, and you've got to know where it is because mm -hmm. it's not going to be presented to you in other gameplay modes. So mm -hmm. I think it's an incredible collection of historical documentaries. Like, they're really, really well done. Right? They won an Academy Award, right? One of these documentaries mm -hmm. won it. They're all fantastic, though. Uh, but I just wonder how many players are actually going to access it. That's my, that's my concern. Yeah. That's the, and it's, it's funny because, you know, um, I think the Oculus, funnily enough, is really good um, at... <laughs> It's a really good way to watch a video, which sounds like an odd thing to say, yes, but like yeah. it works really well. And um, I, it's just funny. I feel like this is a recurring uh, question in like historical video games in general. Do you know what I mean? Like, how is this working? You know, like yeah. how is this conveying knowledge if that's what we're trying to do? Like, these are just kind of really interesting 
Yeah, I don't have a good answer to that. It's yeah. just it's a fascinating example of that exact problem, you know. Yeah. Well, it, it reminds me so much of well, Call of Duty and how most players kind of don't even play the campaign. Uh, mm-hmm. But then also right. with Assassin's Creed, especially the older Assassin's Creed, a lot of the great historical material in those were in the menu database, and so you would have mm-hmm. to pause the game, mm-hmm. go into the menu, and find the database, and then read all that material. And of course, I was doing that as a history mm-hmm. nerd, as a history scholar. But how many players are actually doing? I don't have I don't have data right. on that. Right. I have no idea, and so I feel a lot of criticism of historical game scholars and i include myself in this it's built upon those kinds that kind of material and yet Mm -hmm. how many players are actually accessing it right Mm -hmm. um and so that's my worry with this game it's like there's a lot of really great stuff in here there are documentaries (laughs) that i would love to use in class and i would love them to also be able to kind of experience the game world as well because it's like historically realistic uh Mm -hmm. areas and ships and uh you know, historical, realistic, uh, you know, settings in London and in Plains, all of this really cool material culture stuff. But it's like, can you afford a headset? And mm-hmm. even if you could afford a headset and you right. got it, can you play it? Because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't get motion sickness otherwise, like uh, mm-hmm. planes, trains, boats. I'm totally fine. But with this, after about 30, 45 minutes, I'm, I'm starting to feel a little sick. Uh, so, yeah, I just, I wonder. I, I don't know if VR is quite there yet. It's interesting, too, I think, of what we've done before in the classroom as we talked about this at the conference there back in January. Um, but uh, there's different ways you can experience a video game together as, a, as quite a large group, depending on how large the group gets and everything else. So one of the things you can do is throw a game up on a big screen and let one of the students control it. And if it's the kind of game that allows for it, you can all vote on what to do. And all, there's all these different things you can do. But I'm currently trying to figure out if I had a couple of VR headsets for a class of like 15 people, and I really want to build in this VR experience where I want everyone to play half an hour of such and such a game. Just those kinds of logistics, you know, are difficult to figure out, well, how would that work? And can we do it in the classroom and so on and so on and so on? And so then what do I do if one of my students just has a worse reaction than you're having? Like what if she, he or she already gets seasick or motion yeah. sick rather? And now they just cannot do it. And now it's like, that's the last, you know, that's the last thing I want to do to somebody, you know? So it's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I would say, uh, I forgot to mention this at the top, but a lot of the uh, gallery videos uh, that you can see in the game, those videos are also available online on YouTube. So if you were to search Respawn Entertainment, if you were to search Medal of Honor Above and Beyond uh, gallery mode, you can find links uh, to watch those videos, uh, including uh, uh, Celeste the Academy Award winning uh, documentary. So they're available elsewhere. Uh, uh, they're available online, uh, so you can watch those even if you don't have a VR headset. Um, but you know, like the game itself, I think is really quite incredible in terms of the kind of historical details they put into it. Like you listen to that interview with Peter Hirschman; they did a lot of work on this. They used a lot of money and they did a lot of work on kind of uh, you know putting you in uh, 1940s Europe, but. I just I, I'm left wondering, you know, how many people are picking up an Oculus Quest Two? Mm-hmm. How many people are choosing this game? And then how many mm-hmm. people beyond that are able to make it through 
the campaign. And I would consider myself to be a pretty dedicated player, but you know, with the motion sickness thing, I I don't want to you know I play this in the living room at night. I don't want to puke on my rug, <laughs> you know, at night. And so it's it's kind of like you you talked a bit about uh, dad gaming time. It's like a quarter of that time, right? It's like yeah. thirty minutes. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. that's it. So. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I don't know. Well, I think there's only one way to end this podcast, and that's uh, tell us about the Steam Deck, Bob. I yeah. want to hear all about the Steam Deck. I'm so, yeah. green with envy. <laughs> Whatever colors pass green. So, in other uh, terrible Bob purchases, uh, <laughs> I uh, got my hands on a Steam Deck. And so, for those of you who don't know, a Steam Deck, uh, Steam uh, is uh, the kind of online. Uh, PC gaming platform du jour. Uh, this is uh, run by Valve, uh, software hardware company now, uh, and they have come out with a uh, portable uh, uh, gaming console called the Steam Deck, uh, and uh, it is about I would say maybe uh, 1.5 times bigger and heavier than the Nintendo Switch, so it is a really substantial console. And so I put in for a uh, pre-order of the Steam Deck, I think back in early 2021. And I learned uh, back at the beginning of May that my order was ready. Uh, and so I put down several hundred dollars <laughs> to buy the uh, kind of middle tier version of the Steam Deck, this one with uh, 256 gigabytes SSD. And so uh, this is a portable console that uh, is a mobile version of Steam. So it has all of your Steam games, all your PC Steam games. And they, uh, Valve, are in the midst of converting a lot of those PC-only experiences into something that you can play on a portable console with uh, a console-type uh, navigation and controls. And so I have had this for... I'd say about a week and a half, and I love it to bits. Um, it is incredibly fast, uh, really intuitive UI. Um, the games run really great on it. They look great on that uh, rather large portable screen. Um, and it also, the Steam Deck, it also doubles as a uh, uh, PC laptop. Uh, you can go into desktop mode where it is running a uh, Linux-based uh, operating system that is a traditional laptop PC uh, situation where you've got, um, you know, I've never used a Linux PC before, but, you know, it's got what you expect from Windows. It's got, like, a start button. It's got desktop icons. It's got a recycling bin. <laughs> you know, everything <laughs> you expect uh, from a desktop experience. And I have been using that desktop mode uh, to link my Steam Deck to my uh, Windows uh, Game Pass uh, or my Microsoft Game Pass account, and I've been using my Steam Deck uh, to use uh, Microsoft's um, uh, cloud-based uh, Game Pass mode where I can play Xbox games, Microsoft PC games uh, using cloud streaming onto my Steam Deck uh, through a Firefox browser in this Linux OS on Steam Deck. And that works incredibly well. Now I do have to be tied <laughs> to Wi-Fi and pretty good Wi-Fi too, but still it works incredibly well. And so I not only have a portable system that plays my Steam library, uh, but I also have a portable system that plays my Game Pass library 
And uh, yeah, I, I'm going to have a great summer, John. I'm, I'm sorry that you're so envious. I wish you could have one. Uh, but uh, I'm loving it. I love it so far. I think it's wild that, you know, Valve had those Steam boxes a couple of years ago. And I think Valve understood that if they could just figure out a way to bridge that gap between consoles where just buy this console and don't worry for like hopefully 10 years, maybe five or whatever, just it'll run the games you buy for it. Don't worry. Versus PC where just more stuff can happen, particularly with indie games exploding. They were trying to bridge it and then that they that they're that they seem to be bridging it with a effing portable machine is mind-blowing to me good for them but i say good for them well i think they understand that a lot of players they expect portability right a lot of mm-hmm. uh, yep. you know most people who play games quote unquote play it on a mobile platform you know they play it on mm-hmm. uh, their phone and so this kind of system it's just kind of one step up from having a iphone or having an android phone um, right and so it makes a lot of sense i think and yeah, but the, the games on offer are incredible. They worked really well so far. I haven't had any troubles with the controls uh, just yet. And uh, there are some games uh, where they haven't been completely optimized for Steam Deck. But uh, with the Steam Deck, you've got uh, two uh, mouse pads uh, on either side of the thumbsticks that can use that can double as um, mouse cursors. Uh, and you use those mouse cursors, you can click on things that maybe aren't recognized with the controllers. And then it also has a, a pretty easy to use uh, digital uh, keyboard uh, that you can uh, use to type in any commands uh, related to a, a PC game that maybe isn't optimized for uh, the Steam Deck or optimized uh, for a gaming controller. Uh, and you know, I don't really have any complaints so far. I mean, you know, battery life is an issue. It, it lasts, I would say, two to three hours, regardless of what you're mm-hmm. playing. But, you know, if you're intending just to use it, you know, like on a trip, you know, that's plenty of time for a, a plane ride. That's uh, plenty of time for uh, a car ride. Uh, you know, it's great. You could take it to the beach. I mean, it's a little expensive. I wouldn't want to take it to the beach, but you could. <laughs> Um, it's not too heavy. I don't think it comes with a very, very nice carrying case as well. Um, and yeah, it's, I, I love it. I can't wait to use it. I, you know, I, I used it this past week when my wife was watching TV. I was sitting there playing Gears of War 4, uh, via mm. the xCloud. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's fantastic. You can also, if you're using it as a PC, you can, use onboard bluetooth to connect it to a wireless mouse and keyboard Uh, so i was kind of looking at uh, options to use this as my kind of go-to laptop uh, going Mm -hmm. forward Um, and especially during the summer where i don't have to do a lot of kind of desktop scholarly stuff or you know interacting with uh, the lms here at Collin college i can just take this to answer emails and then otherwise use it to play games so yeah i'm John's shaking his head right now. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just wondering, I'm just wondering how much longer the, I mean, building your own PC is kind of a niche thing, but yeah. people buy Alienwares and stuff like that. But I, you talk about the cloud streaming working so well. I think Microsoft is ahead of the pack with that stuff, yeah. and Steam Deck is now available. I look at my current GPU CPU combo, and it's like, why? I think that's it. I think whenever it is, a year from now, three years from now, when the GPU just becomes too old. 
I switch over to cloud gaming or yeah. something. I think I yeah. just don't see myself continuing. I just don't. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. with you. I'm with you. So, um, so hopefully this Steam Deck and the Oculus Quest 2, this puts an end to my very rash run of extremely <laughs> expensive purchases. And I go back to saving my money for my kid's college fund. Um, We'll see if that happens. Uh, maybe, maybe my daughter can go to college, and my son will just stay home. Maybe <laughs> that's a trade-off I'll make. <laughs> I'm joking, of course, but, um, but yeah, it's uh, it's great. I feel very fortunate uh, to have the financial resources to buy all this stuff and to play these things. And I don't know. I I feel guilty on the one hand. I've got a little bit of survivor's remorse, but at the same time, I feel like I've denied myself for most of my adult life from making these kind of purchases and now <laughs> i've got the disposable income so here we go this is it yeah you find and out you're who helping you, the economy you find out who you truly are when you've got a little bit that's of money, right. john that's what i find <laughs> out. I've, I've discovered i am an extreme video game nerd that's that's what i've discovered about myself there are much worse things to be I suppose, in this world I so suppose. i think you're good yeah <laughs> much much worse things to be in texas uh in particular <laughs> oh god yeah uh, so on that note i think that brings the end of this episode john thank you very much for uh, getting online and talking a little bit about games with me thanks bob it's always fun always and you too, listener, thank you very much for joining us. If you're interested in what we do and learning more about our past episode, please visit us at historyrespawn.com. And if you enjoy our work a lot and want to support us, please visit us at History Respawn on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash History Respawn. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.